life and destiny. You ever find yourself fighting tirelessly to make sure that your plans aren't frustrated, analyzing the significance of of every unfolding event in your life to a fault? You ever find yourself wrestling with the question of what God's will is for your life? Do you ever wonder if God has anything significant for you to participate in for the sake of his kingdom? That's a big one that we'll get to this morning. You ever struggle to believe that God's at work even in the midst of the most mundane moments of your life? You ever wonder what to do with those moments in life that God's fingerprints appear to be absent from your story? I mean, these are just a few of the questions that this book of the Bible invites us to ask. We could keep going there. I don't know about you, but I wrestle with every single one of those questions in my own life personally. I've experienced the the paralyzation that comes with trying to sort out the will of God for my life numerous times. I've attempted to shove God into the passenger seat as if you can actually do that, believing that I'm a better pilot of my own life. I've tasted the tears of despair when I wasn't sure God was was really there. And so I'm really grateful for the book of Esther. I'm glad that God didn't, didn't give us 65 books that make up the canon of Scripture, but he gave us this one too which addresses all of these issues, and, and amazingly, without ever once mentioning the name of God. That's how good of an author God is. If you're in need of some, some adequate weaponry to wield in the battle against sin and unbelief this morning, I think you've come to the right place. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Esther chapter 4. That's where we'll be this morning. If you, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one nearby underneath one of the chairs in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles, open up to this morning's passage. It's a couple books before you get to the book of Psalms. So somewhere midway into the Bible, then start moving to the left and you should find it. If you don't own a Bible or you have a translation that's a little difficult to track with, you can take that Bible as the churches give to you. Let me, let me just pray for us and we'll jump in and we'll get going because we've got a bit of ground to cover this morning. God, I want to begin this morning by just saying thank you for working through morally ambiguous people, including myself. Even this moment right now as I stand on this stage and open up the scriptures with your people, I'm keenly aware that I'm a flawed human being. There there are two things that are not flawed, your word and your spirit. And God, I pray that you would move as we sit with your word. Holy Spirit, that you would move in our midst, that you would work, you would awaken our minds, that you would stir our hearts, that you would lift us up out of our spiritual slumbers, that you would help us to see what you have called us to, that we're a part of this glorious, grand, redemptive story that you are authoring, you have caught us up into that, and that even the the smallest most seemingly insignificant moments in our lives are part of that story and they have meaning. God, I pray that you would help us to to experience and taste the freedom of knowing that if it were up to us to eliminate the moral ambiguity within us in order to be used by you, that we would all be hopeless. We would all be lifted off of the pages of this story and have no place in it. But God, you are a God of grace. And for that, we can express gratitude and trust in you and know that you will mobilize us and use us for your glory and our joy. Help us to see those things in your word this morning by the power of your spirit. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Previously on Esther. Yes, I'm going to do that every single week. Just so you know, I'm just going to go ahead and let you know. Every single week, you're going to hear me say those three words. uh, And I'm going to attempt to catch you up to speed, but... 
Uh, there's a second way that you can catch yourself up to speed in a little more detail, which is you can go to the church's website and you can check out the podcast leading up to this moment. Because this is a narrative, the book of Esther, it's kind of like engaging in a good Netflix series. It's nine episodes in length. And so you can go back and you can catch up on episodes one, two, and three and experience them in their fullness. Because the best I'm going to be able to give you this morning is a summary of the first three episodes of this real-life Netflix series. But let me attempt to do that. Episode one, the book of Esther begins by introducing us to the great king Ahasuerus, which is the biblical name for Xerxes. This was essentially the king of the known world in his time, having inherited the Persian Empire from his father at the age of 32. The author of Esther spends much of chapter one showing us the fullness and splendor of the glory of the king inviting us to a party at the king's palace as the king gathers thousands of his officials and servants for 180 days of absolute debauchery, commanding their loyalty through an open bar and a harem of women. And then the king proceeds to throw a second party, a week-long after party, after the party. That's how gangster Xerxes is. And we're told that the ultimate purpose of these lavish parties that the king throws, chapter 1, verse 4, is to show the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness. That everything belongs to the king, everything exists for the king. Yet, something unexpected happens midway through chapter 1, setting the stage for everything to come in this incredible story. As the great king Xerxes invites his queen, Queen Vashti, to parade around a room of drunken men as the king's trophy wife. And the king shockingly declines his invitation, and we're given a hint as to what the author of Esther is actually doing here, revealing to us that, that the most powerful man in the known world is not ultimately the one in charge, unable to maintain his own dignity in the midst of the defiance of his queen. In his moment of great embarrassment, the king issues a royal order, banishing Vashti from his presence forever, and we're left wondering, who will become the new queen? What will she be like? Chapter 2, episode 2, brings us on the set of a reality TV show as the king's men suggest an international beauty contest to be judged by the queen for the purpose of selecting a replacement for the, the recently banished queen, a Miss Persian Empire, if you will. And, and though upwards of 400 young women are cast for the show, we're only introduced to one, a young lady by the name of Esther who manages to capture the heart of the king. She's the... She's the last one standing at the final rose ceremony, you might say. And as the king chooses Esther, a Jewish orphan, to become his new queen, we see that Esther now has influence in the unfolding events of this story. And it doesn't take long for us to see her influence at work. As her cousin Mordecai learns of an assassination plot on the king's life, and he passes the word on to Esther, who happens to be in a place to be able to pass the word on to the king now, and the king lives to exalt himself another day, as the Persian JFK assassination is averted. As the curtain opens on chapter 3, episode 3, the, the story shifts into fifth gear, into overdrive, as we're introduced to Haman, a man filled with pride and insecurity, a man to whom Mordecai, Esther's cousin, refuses to bend his knee, which absolutely sets Haman off. He determines that being that Mordecai is of Jewish descent, the best course of action is the mass genocide of the Jewish people. It's amazing what, what pride in the human heart will do. And so with the king's blessing, an edict calling for the annihilation of the Jews is sent out across the empire. And it's a call for a bloodbath. Young and old, women and children, babies learning how to crawl, elderly people unable to defend themselves, women in their third trimesters. 
Chapter 3 ends with this declaration of the mass genocide of the Jewish people. They've essentially been given the news that they have 11 months to live. And we're left wondering, what will become of God's people? Are we about to encounter a pre-Hitler holocaust here? Which brings us to episode 4. Chapter 4, verse 1. says this. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. We don't... We don't really know what's running through Mordecai's mind at this moment in the story. We, we don't know if he's overwhelmed with guilt, if he's thinking in his mind that this disaster could have been averted if he would have simply bowed down to Haman. We, we do know that he's filled with great anguish, the tearing of clothes, the putting on of sackcloth and ashes. That's biblical language for the showing of extreme grief. Mordecai's overwhelmed with grief, as are all of the Jews throughout the Persian Empire as they receive the news of, of their impending destruction, you might say. We're told that, that Mordecai approaches the, the entrance of the king's gate and that he can't go any further because no one's allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth, probably because it would have been a real buzzkill to the king, honestly, a disruption to his life of merriment and pleasure, which you see tattooed all over chapter 1. Mordecai comes right up to the entrance of the gate, just close enough that he might get Esther's attention. And we're told that it works. Verse 4, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. One of the most amazing things here at this point in chapter 4, at least to me, Esther's initial, uh, initial distress is not over the mass genocide of her people. She, she doesn't know that plan yet in verse 4. We get to that a few verses later, which is mind-boggling to think about. According to verse 3, all of the Jewish people throughout the entire empire are aware of the death sentence that hangs over them. Meanwhile, Esther has no clue. Life in the palace has completely isolated her from the devastation throughout the empire. Which brings up a question for me. Might there be something in that for us? Life in the palace of suburbia is designed, designed to isolate us from the devastation around us, is it not? Like Xerxes, suburbia tells us to keep our brokenness to ourselves. Suburbia tells us to pull into our garage, to close the garage door behind us, and to deal with our brokenness behind closed doors. And thus, there are always four walls separating us from the devastation of the empire, unless it's our own devastation that we can't seem to escape. Esther has no idea, no clue of the plot that exists to annihilate the Jewish people. She, she is, in fact, distressed by Mordecai's visible display of grief and anguish, which communicates to her that something's wrong in the empire. We, we don't know why Esther sends clothes to Mordecai. Some believe she's responding superficially, that she's attempting to put a band-aid on a heart attack. She doesn't want to deal with the real issue. Others believe she's simply trying to get Mordecai into the appro appropriate attire so that she can actually get him near to her to talk about what's going on. Again, another moment of moral ambiguity. Verse 5 goes on to tell us, then Esther 
called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. So Mordecai is unable to approach Esther because he's clothed in grief, and Esther is unable to approach Mordecai because it might compromise her identity as a Jewish woman. And so the the two of them start passing notes like middle schoolers is essentially what's going on here in the middle of this chapter. And, And we're told that through Hathic, Mordecai informs Esther of all the details of Haman's plan of mass genocide, and, and he leverages, Mordecai does, whatever authority he thinks he has as Esther's guardian to command her to go to the king, to beg the king's favor, to plead with the king on behalf of the Jewish people. He, he knows that he can't enter into the king's presence himself. Someone else has to do it on his behalf, and not just for Mordecai, but for all of God's people. He, he's essentially asking Esther to function as a mediator. Hang on to that. We'll get there in a moment in terms of the gospel implications. Verse 10 goes on to say, Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, Esther says, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. A couple things to point out here. For one, the Persian king is incredibly inconsistent, is he not? He's essentially, going back to chapter 1, he says, if you don't come when you are called upon, like Vashti, you get dethroned. If you do come when you're not called upon, you get decapitated. That's just bad bad thinking in terms of of actions and consequences on the part of the king. I'd be pretty nervous too if I was Esther. She's not feeling incredibly confident at the moment. She hasn't been summoned into the king's presence in 30 days. And we all know that, that King Xerxes is not a man who sleeps alone. I don't know about you, but knowing that my spouse was carousing with potentially 30 other partners in any given month, that would probably create a confidence issue for me. I'm guessing you too. Story goes on to say, in verse 12, and they told Mordecai what Esther had said. And then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go Gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Mordecai, he implies here that Esther's life hangs in the balance just as much as as any other Jew He's saying you can choose not to stick your neck out for your people and your silence will be the death of you. 
And by the way, you were destined for this. What do you do with that? People have attempted to make it so easy for us to make Esther the heroine of this story as if it's so crystal clear. And yet here, Mordecai's motivation once again leaves us struggling with the ambiguity of the characters of the story. Every single one of them. This is Esther's defining moment and we have no idea what it truly is that motivates her. Is it the fact that if she doesn't go to the king, there's no if about it, she will die? And so to go to the king is to preserve her own life to create at least an if in terms of survival or is it this is my moment of destiny God has called me to such a moment as this we don't know we don't know if she's trying to preserve her life or if she recognizes that she is destiny's child no idea as to what's going on here even the choice of words is interesting this is the point in the book where you, you would expect God to finally be named, right? We're four chapters into this thing. This is the moment that you mention the name of God. Knowing Mordecai's lineage, he can only mean that God has brought Esther into this place of influence. And he's done so at this moment in history for the rescue of his covenant people. And if Esther won't step to the plate, God will bring about that rescue in some other way. But that's not what Mordecai says, is it? He speaks in this sort of veiled language. And here's the amazing thing. The veiled language itself is included not to disaffirm, but to affirm God's providential hand at work. As J.G. McConville says in his commentary, quote, As for the fact that the name of God does not appear in the book, this does not mean that it is not theological or does not teach about God. The silence about God is quite deliberate, not to make the point that he is inactive in human institutions, but on the contrary, that he is hidden behind all events. All these seeming coincidences up to this point in the story, which, by the way, there are more to come, that they're not coincidences at all. God is on the move. God is not going to allow his people to come to an end. He's not going to allow his story of redemption to fail to reach its final chapter, that In the bigger, broader picture of Scripture, without the preservation of the Jewish people, there is no hope of a coming Messiah. If the Jews are extinguished, so is the hope of Jesus Christ. God's not going to let that happen. He promised going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, to send the greatest dragon slayer of all time, Jesus Christ. And he never breaks a promise. So you can know how this story is going to end before you even get to the finish of it all. Esther calls for a fast on her behalf, and it communicates the significance of what she's about to do. Notice that she doesn't commit herself to external beauty treatments for three days, going back to chapter 2. Instead of eating, which the king liked his ladies to do, chapter 2, verse 9, she chooses to fast. She's relinquishing control to some degree. She, she appears to be throwing herself on the mercy of God, acknowledging that, that she hasn't been living as a devout Jew should live putting herself in the crosshairs as a target of mass genocide herself. Remember, Esther is the only character in the story with two names. The author's way of depicting her as a young woman attempting to live in two very different worlds. At this point in the story, no more of that. It's time to choose. Can you relate to Esther? Man, I know I can. The feeling that God has one arm and is pulling you toward him and that the world has the other arm and is pulling you in the opposite direction. We, we face numerous defining moments in our lives, just like Esther. The most critical of them being our response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel confronts us with the decision to either choose the world or choose to identify with Christ as one of God's people. 
In choosing to identify with Jesus, we're given hope and meaning. We're caught up into this great plan of redemption. And so I would say this. Let me say it this way. If you're not a Christian, you're staring down the barrel of a defining moment right now. He used the words of Esther chapter 4. Who knows whether you have not come to this moment in your life for such a time as this. Will you choose to follow Jesus? But if we're honest, Christians in the room, the defining moments don't stop when you become a Christian, do they? The Christian life is filled with defining moments. We're faced daily, even moment by moment, with opportunities, with questions of whether or not we'll take the path of least resistance or choose to live by faith in the fullness of who we are in Christ. As Ian Duguid says in his commentary, very sobering words, he says, in times of crisis, for all our theological, uh, all our orthodox theology, our own first response is frequently the whimper of resignation or human strategy rather than the bark of robust faith in God. We believe in God, but in practice, react to life's crises as if we were virtual atheists. Life is... It's filled with defining moments, and, and every one of those moments reveal to, to ourselves and to those around us what our true source of hope and refuge really is. The, the amazing thing to me about this story, about a, a book like the book of Esther, is just the lavish nature of the grace of God. Do you see it? Like Esther finds herself in this defining moment through past decisions that are morally questionable. She's a mixed bag. Even now, we have no idea of what truly motivates her to act be it the fear of death or the call of destiny. Yet, God chooses this morally ambiguous character to fulfill his redemptive purposes. You can just hear God saying, you've made an absolute sinful mess of your life. Aren't you glad that I'm the God who rescues and mobilizes sinners by grace? Now, I don't know about you, but as a morally ambiguous character in this divine redemptive historical drama myself, I find that incredibly encouraging. I mean, let me just... Let me just give you a moment of transparency. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but uh, for pastors, the stars don't align such that we find ourselves in our greatest moments of abiding in Christ at the 10 a.m. hour on Sunday mornings. More often than not, there is a mixed bag of a human being even stepping on stage to open God's word with you. And, and, the, and the, the reality is, we're all that way, are we not? How many times do you get up, get in your car, try to get the fight with your spouse resolved by the time you pull into the parking lot so that you can step out and not look morally ambiguous in front of the rest of God's people, yet we all are. Like God's the only one who's not in this story. And he uses us by his grace. He cuts through all of that moralistic red tape garbage that we bring to the table, and he moves and works both in us and through us. He wants to use you by his grace to fulfill his redemptive purposes, just like he used Esther, just like he used the Jewish people across the landscape. See, here's the freeing thing of it all. It doesn't have to be glamorous. In fact, that's the whole point of the story of the book of Esther. Karen Job says in her commentary, the Esther story is an example of how at one crucial moment in history, the covenant promises God had made were fulfilled, not by his miraculous intervention, but through completely ordinary events. See, here's the, cra here's the crazy thing. In a few commentaries this week, I, I read, so I read on multiple occasions that the heartbeat of chapter four is, you've been given the palace. How are you gonna use it for good? 
And something about that sounded incredibly millennial in a, in a not so good way. Like you got to find that one thing in life that you were destined to do. And if you can't find it, all is going to be lost in the world because God doesn't use the mundane moments in the courses of ordinary events in life. He only uses the massive palisade type moments in our lives for his glory. And that's just not true. Like some of you will be given the palace, but make no mistake, there is only one who was given the palace in the story of Esther, and it was Esther. And yet God used all of those people scattered across the landscape of the Persian Empire. In this case, we see them fasting on Esther's behalf, but we know that they woke up every day to their farms, to their jobs, to their families, to their relationships with their neighbors and co-workers and so forth and so on. That's how God moves too. And more often than not, that's how he moves. Because we can't all be Esther. And that's okay. We, we all wake up, most of us, to seemingly ordinary lives. And the beautiful truth of the book of Esther and the God of the book of Esther is that God will use our seemingly ordinary lives to advance his kingdom. Through a conversation with a neighbor or coworker of yours. Through the giving of yourself to meet a need in the life of someone you know through texting the gospel to someone you know needs to hear it today, through showing up for gatherings like these, that God moves the narrative forward through the normal, ordinary course of human life, and it all matters, all of it, even the most seemingly mundane episodes. And, and amazingly, it's all by his grace. Here's where the gospel comes in. Apart from divine intervention, the Jewish people were done for, and so are we. Because of our sin, the same sentence of death that was pronounced upon the Jewish people has been pronounced upon us. Like Esther, we cannot come into the presence of the king. Our sin condemns us. Who is, who is good enough? Who, is, who has enough moral fiber to stand in the presence of a perfect, holy God? The, the golden scepter, you might say, is not being held out to any one of us on our own merit. That like Mordecai and the Jews, we need a mediator. We need someone to plead with God on our behalf. And we have that mediator. We sang about that mediator in Jesus Christ. That Esther had her opportunity because she was both Persian royalty and of Jewish descent. And so Jesus is our mediator because he is simultaneously fully God and fully man. Divine royalty and of Jewish descent in solidarity with us as his people. 1 Timothy 2.5 says it this way, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That we need a mediator whose sacrifice for sin is sufficient and who pleads our case to God. And we have that mediator in Jesus. To use the language of Esther chapter 4, Jesus entered into the story of redemptive history for such a time as this. As the Apostle Paul says, when the fullness of time had come. Unlike Esther, Jesus didn't isolate himself from the brokenness of this world. Rather, he entered in to our dev devastation. Esther declared, if I perish, I perish. Jesus declared, when I perish, I'll perish for my people. It's going to happen. That unlike Esther, Jesus wasn't motivated by fear, but rather the joy that was set before him. That his once-for-all sacrifice is so incredibly sufficient that he's seated at the Father's right hand. We talked about that in our Hebrews series. His sitting down is a declaration of the finality of his sacrifice. That there are no more sacrifices for sin to be made. When he said it is finished, he meant it. We don't have to add to his work in order to merit God's love and favor. 
And, and we're told that Jesus pleads our case on the basis of his blood. Even now, we sang about it just a moment ago. Before the throne of God above, we the redeemed have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever le- lives and pleads for every one of us who are in, in him. That we can draw near to the king. And not fearing for our lives like Esther. But in the full assurance of faith. Isn't that good news? Knowing that even when we can't see all the pieces of the story fitting together, coming together, God's working both in and through us by his grace to fulfill his redemptive purposes throughout the world. And thinking future tense, we can rest assured that he will one day usher us into a kingdom in which fasting will be no more. Because pain will be no more. Suffering will be no more. Grief will be no more. Death will be no more. Instead of fasting, there will be eternal feasting in the presence of the one true King Jesus. In a moment, we're going to continue to worship together in a few different ways. James is going to come back up uh, and uh, lead us in worship through song. We'll continue to sing about and to and for this King Jesus, our great mediator, our hope of salvation and redemption. Uh, We'll continue to worship uh, through prayer. There'll be people in the back of the auditorium to pray with and for you if you want to take advantage of that, even this morning. Um, And then we'll also worship through the uh, receiving of communion. We take the the bread here representing Jesus' body and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. Just invite you as you prepare to come to the table this morning to to just sit, sit for a moment. Sit just long enough to soak in in the, the glorious reality and freedom that comes in knowing that that we don't have to try to put people in the Bible up on a pedestal such that we can now have someone to measure up to so that God will love us because that's not how the The God of the Bible works. He loves us by his grace because of who Jesus is on our behalf. That we can rest in that and know that God wants to use us because of what Christ has accomplished for us. We've been drawn in. We've been united to Christ. We've been drawn in to his great purposes of redemption. And in most cases, it will not look glamorous. And God is using it all. And may we even find freedom in that to wake up tomorrow and to look at the ordinary course of events that unfold before us and to go, God, how amazing that you would even use me on a random Monday in South Metro Atlanta in whatever way you want to use me today. And and to to press into that for his glory and our joy.